Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I heard my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, and though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables to tread on the heights. This is God's Word. Please be seated. This morning, Habakkuk. Tonight, Zephaniah. You'll find in the, uh, the announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you can use as we go through Habakkuk this morning. It's kind of a funny little word. Uh, we were kind of laughing in the back trying to figure out the right way to, to say it. Some say Habakkuk. Others of us, uh, and I'm part of that, so I like to think it's the right way to pronounce it, is Habakkuk. But I really think that the Brazilians have the best way of saying it. They say Habakkuki, which sounds like Habakkuki. And I think that that's kind of a nice thing to do when you're reading Habakkuk is to have a big, nice chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) But we're going to look at Habakkuk and then Zephaniah tonight. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer as we press our mind into God's word. Father, these are such awesome words. The assurance that comes to us that you are in your holy temple, that there is joy and salvation in your presence, and that through your power and in, in you, Father, is the, the, the ability that even in evil times you make us like the deer and able to climb and to leap up into the high places. Father, help us to, to understand how this is done in our life, not, not just for our own blessing but in order to be a light in this community around us, to have a certain kind of buoyancy, a a certain kind of poise when it comes to the evil that is visited upon our lives. And so, Father, with with, with faith and, and, and with great desire and in tremendous modesty and humility before you, we ask you to make this text plain to us and to help us to understand it and it to be translated into wisdom, Father, that blesses us in this life. Father, give us ears to hear it and eyes to see it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said, Rabbi, <laughs> that's right, amen. That includes even the little voices, right? <laughs> Rabbi Akiva is one of the treasured rabbis in all of Jewish history. He was uh, a very famous rabbi not, uh, not too long after the time of Jesus and was very famous for teaching Torah. Uh, there towards the end of his life, uh, there was a, a period of time where he was teaching 
five disciples Torah every day. But this was also during a period of time when Hadrian was the Roman emperor and because there was a, a tenuous at best relationship with, with Israel or Palestine and with Rome, uh, Hadrian outlawed the teaching of Torah. Said, nope, can't do it. Can't do it in private, can't do it publicly. Well, Rabbi Akiva kept on teaching Torah to his disciples and would even teach it publicly. And there came a day when it was discovered by the Roman soldiers that Rabbi Akiva was teaching Torah publicly. He was arrested. He was put in prison. He was, he was given a trial. He was, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to death. And on the day of his death, they take this old rabbi, some, uh, it, you, know, you know, during that period of time, everybody that uh, was over the age of 60 looked like they were 100. Nobody really knows how old Rabbi Akiva was at this time, but some conjecture that maybe he was close to 100 years of age. He is this ancient, aged rabbi. And they bring him out to a public place and they bind him and they begin to flay his body with the Roman iron combs on his body in order to execute him that way. And the whole time that he is standing there receiving the blows of the iron combs, he's reciting the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And he kept saying it over and over and over again as the iron combs were hitting his body. And finally, one of his disciples could not stand it any longer and he shouted out. I mean, it's a public execution and this disciple of Rabbi Akiva yells out, Even now, even now, Master, you maintain your obligations to God. And Rabbi Akiva stopped reciting the Shema, and he turned just for a moment to say, I have loved God all of my life with my heart and with my soul. Do not deny me the opportunity to love Him with my body. And he continued to recite the Shema. And the legend of the death of Rabbi Akiva says that when he died, the words, the Lord is one, was on his lips. Would you agree with the statement that's up on the screen that loving God in the midst of suffering is hard? That loving God in the midst of grief and turmoil and trouble and evil is difficult. From the time that Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden out into a fallen world, a world of thistles and thorns, Human beings have struggled with what do you do and how do you live and how do you understand and how do you make sense of the evil that is in the world. Habakkuk is no different. Habakkuk is struggling with these same kinds of issues that you and I struggle with you know, 3, 000, nearly 3,000 years later. During the time of Josiah, Habakkuk lived during the time of Josiah and during the time of the end of Judah. During the time of Josiah, the expectations are really high in those remaining two tribes that all of the reformation and all of the spiritual revival that Josiah is implementing with the reading of God's Word and all of the getting rid of the idols and the ashram poles and all of that stuff, that there would be great times that would be headed back towards, towards Judah. 
They had already witnessed about 125 years or so before this time the destruction of Israel and those ten tribes taken off in captivity. Now it looks like Babylon and Assyria are fighting it out. Babylon looks like it's tough and it's going to be the ascendant power in the world. And there is hope with all of this revival and all of this reformation, spiritually speaking, that's taking place under Josiah that everything is going to be righted for Israel. That is going to renew her relationship with God. But then Josiah dies at the hands of the Egyptians. Jehoiakim becomes king at that point. And under Jehoiakim, Judah takes a step backwards and then another step backwards. And all of the good things that they were expecting to come because of Josiah and all of the abundance of blessing and all of the spiritual revival and the righted relationship with God does not come at all. You know what does come? The evil times come. And that is a cycle that repeats itself throughout all of history. The good times are expected. It's always going to get better. It's always going to get better. Better things are going to happen a year from now. A year from now, things are going to be better. Ten years from now, we're going to be in a better place. And yet, even though that's anticipated, the bad times in some cases come instead. And that's why we have Habakkuk, as difficult as it is to say his name. That's why we have these precious, beautiful, titanium laced words of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Because Habakkuk prepares people for the evil times. Habakkuk prepares people for the evil times. The times in which the thorns and the thistles that are out of Genesis 3 when God is cursing the land. It'll be thorns and thistles. By sweat you're going to produce your food. The thorns and the thistles come into our own life. And maybe it's into our finances. Maybe it's into our relationship. Maybe it's into our mind as we deal with, with, with maybe some form of, of, of evil that is visited, uh, visited upon our mental health. But Judah, in this particular book, is being prepared for the judgment and the, the exile that is coming her way because of blatant disregard for Yahweh. It's not going to get better. For a while, it's going to get worse. And if there are three ways or three angles that we're going to look at or think about Habakkuk, it's these three ways. First, he talks about the problem of evil. Number two, the tactics for survival, when the evil and the thorns and the thistles and the, and the bad times and the turmoil, the trouble, the pain, the grief, the suffering comes your way. What are the tactics for survival? And then in the, the third chapter, the reality of joy. So let's look first at the problem of evil. The book begins with these words, verses 2 and 3. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. I'll cry out to you, violence but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. You'll notice in that text that Habakkuk is asking a lot of the same questions that you and I, if we're not asking it right now, we have asked it or we will ask it in the future. Habakkuk asks, how long? How long is this going to go on? How long must I deal with this? How much longer do I have to, to sustain my life in this kind of circumstance? And then he asks the question that's really kind of the question at the heart of the questions, and it's why? Why is this happening? Why aren't you doing something? And he begins to define what is at the core of his complaint in the very next verse. He says, the law is paralyzed. 
You know what it means to be paralyzed, right? The message that is being sent is not being received, and therefore the, the body part that, that is not receiving the message from the brain to move is not moving. It, it, is, it can't receive the message, therefore it cannot move. It is, it's no longer moving. It has no action, no power to it. And that's what has happened in Judah with God's Word. Even though under Josiah, the Word is being read over and over again and people are in revival, now they've taken a step backward and the Word has become cliche. They've heard it all before. It's become kind of boring. And because the message is not being received, the things that Torah taught about the way that you're to take care of your neighbor and the way that you love God and the way that you worship and what you do with your finances and your material goods and the blessings that you have received from God and how you conduct yourself in business and how you conduct yourself in relationships with your neighbors and, and with your colleagues, all of that is paralyzed because the law, the message of the law is not being received. Justice never prevails. Never. What would it be like to live in a culture, to live in a society, church, where, where wrong people, there's not any hope in your heart that wrongdoing and criminal actions and the people who do wrong will never, there will never be justice. What kind of fear is, is laced through that kind of a culture? He says, the wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. It's not that justice can't happen. It's that justice has been perverted. And out of this complaint and out of these questions of how long and why, how long do I have to sustain this? How long do I have to support this in my life? Why do you make me look at evil? Comes God's answer. He says, look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. And so basically what God is saying, here's a backache. I mean, he's, he's crying in his prayer. How long and why? Why is, why is justice perverted? How come justice never takes place? It never prevails. How come the law is paralyzed? How much longer do we have to deal with this? And God says, I want you to look to the north and I want you to see that terrible, dreaded, vicious people that are coming your way. That's my answer. God is going to raise up the most ruthless, bloodthirsty people in the world and they're going to sweep across your land with their military might in such a way that you are going to be crushed thoroughly and utterly and viciously. That's my answer to you, Habakkuk. God is not saying that the times are going to get better. God is saying that the times are going to get worse. Now, that's not an answer anybody expects in prayer, right? And Habakkuk, like all of us, perplexed. Completely. He says to God, I complain to you about all of this bad stuff that's happening spiritually and physically, and your answer is that? Your answer is to make it worse? I mean, come on, God, what kind of answer is that? And then it gets a little dicey. You go to the end of the first chapter, and what you have is Habakkuk saying, Lord, are you not from everlasting? I want you to circle those words in your Bible, are you not? Francis Anderson, in one of the commentaries on Habakkuk, writes that of the 96 occurrences of this word in the Hebrew text, 
the overwhelming majority of the uh, instances are in vigorous human argument. It's not just that, that Habakkuk has a question, are, are you not from everlasting? It's sort of you know, something you say when you don't know what to say. He's saying, I thought you were holy. I thought you were the holy, eternal God. He's saying, God, you're making me look at all of this, and that's your answer? I thought you were holy. And it's here that we face two of the big questions for people of faith when it comes to evil times. How can there be an evil time when there is a God? I've told you about the bumper sticker that I've seen. That's, you know, it's, uh, it's a bumper sticker that is uh, atheistic. It says, um, God is loving, God is powerful, God is all-knowing, choose two. And the reason for that is how can you have a God that's all three of those things and still have evil in the world? The problem of pain, written by C.S. Lewis. The problem of evil in the world by a majority of, of, of theological writers for the last 200 years have been trying to, to deal with this very question. How can you have a God that you consider to be holding from everlasting and good and perfect in all that He does, and in His presence you can still see this evil? The second question is how, uh, much more practical, is how do you live with an evil time? Even if I don't have an answer for how there can be God and evil at the same time, how do you live with an evil time? I mean, that's what I've got to do. That's what Habakkuk has to do on a daily basis. How do you live with the evil time, with the thorns and the thistles that have invaded your life? And that's where we come to the tactics for survival. There are a lot here. I think we only have time for two. And when we get to Job in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about this even more in detail. But the first thing that Habakkuk reminds us is that when the evil comes, you need, it sounds, it sounds so simple. It's one of the most difficult things. You remember what you know. You remember what you know. One of the great encouragements of the Bible is to be wise. The book of Proverbs, being wise and having knowledge and fear of the Lord, this is worth more than any of the riches that you can imagine having in your life. It is, it's wisdom, knowledge, is the information. It's the data. It's the facts. Knowledge that is applied to life is the wisdom. And so in chapter 2 and verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the, what? Ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Now, you have to ask the question, you know, why in the world did ancient cities build towers? Why did they build ramparts? Why did they build these high places? And the answer is they didn't have radar. They didn't have radar. They got up in the high places, they got up in the ramparts, and they built these towers in the corners of their walls in order to see what was coming. You went up into the tower to see further down the road. You were able to see at a distance what you could not see on the ground. And they gave, you, they gave you a little bit of a head start when it came to putting the defenses together for, for, for the fortress, for your people, for the village. Now, part of the blessing of the wisdom that comes to disciples of Jesus is a perspective that keeps you from being swept away by the evil. It doesn't mean that because you have wisdom, pain and suffering and misery is never going to visit your life. It will. That's what it means to live in the fallen world and to be a human being and to be in relationship with other human beings. 
But remembering what you know about God and about His promises and what has been done for you in Christ keeps you from being devastated by the evil and the, and the pain and the adversity and the thorns and the thistles that visit your life. Keeps you from being devastated beyond repair. It means that the truth of all of those verses that you have known since you were a child and have memorized and laid upon your heart, they don't just stay in your head, but they go all the way down into your soul and they become a part of your reality and a part of your worldview and they change the way that you deal with the adversity. That's why Peter in the New Testament says, don't be surprised when you face tribulations. That's why James says, in the context of trials and tribulations and, and the joy that we have or can have in those trials and tribulations to ask for wisdom. That God gives wisdom to those that seek wisdom. That God will give you wisdom in able, when, when you need it and able to sustain your life successfully in the pain. And so in chapter 2 and verse 20 we have these words. As a worldview, the Lord is in His holy temple. Regardless of what's going on around us, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Every decision you make, good or bad, everything that happens to you, good or bad, is viewed from that perspective that the Lord is in His holy temple. And quite frankly, that's a difficult thing to do, but that's how Paul operated. And all of the things that you read about in Acts and, and, and 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter uh, 11 or 12, about all of the things that he suffered grievous things that he suffered. At times, body-breaking things that he suffered. He says in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings, all of that stuff you find in Acts, all of that stuff that you find in 2 Corinthians, it's not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And the light that is at the end of the tunnel, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, that the day will come when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That one day, there's no schizophrenia. That one day, there's no schizoaffective disorders, the leukemias, the cancers, the greed lusts and the coveting and the lying and the violence that entails that, all of that will be gone. Because the earth will be filled not just with the knowledge, but the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the second thing you do, not only do you remember what you know, I mean, you, you bring into practice everything you've ever been taught about God, but then the second thing is you, page, you patiently stick with God. You patiently stick with God. Uh, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, For the revelation awaits, circle that word, and appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. And will not delay. You know, back in the 1970s, you know, growing up in youth group, we used to sing a song in youth group all the time. We still sing it some today, but it, it's, it's that song, Teach me, Lord, to wait down upon my knees till in your own good time you will what? Answer my please. And so it became kind of a cliche, even to this day, to wait on the Lord. Something's bad happening in your life, you share it with a brother or a sister, where they say, hey, you need to wait on the Lord. 
So you need to make a decision. Wait on the Lord. Something is happening is kind of dire in your life. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. It's a good thing. I mean, the Bible talks about it all the time. Wait on the Lord. What in the world does it mean? When you ask me about waiting, sometimes it means, you know, doing nothing. The word, the Hebrew word, haka, which means wait, implies patience. Another way to, to say wait is to be what? Be patient. You know, once you've said to your three-year-old, wait, 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 and he keeps asking the question, what do you say after that? Be patient. <laughs> Mommy has her arms filled with laundry. An old pet peeve, uh, I shouldn't say old because every once in a while it creeps back in, but an old pet peeve used to be fast food that wasn't fast. You ever ordered at a place and, you know, you're in a hurry and, you know, Fast food is, is, is okay, but it's not the greatest, but then they make you wait for it. It's like adding insult to injury, right? Years ago, I'm in a restaurant here in town, order at a local restaurant some fast food, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, finally waiting some more. And then after waiting some more, I wait for a little bit longer. And that food's not showing up. I mean, it's like, you know, 20 minutes. And finally, I just go, you know what, i got to go. And I split. And here's the point. That food probably showed up at some point. But I missed it. Because I was impatient. I waited. But I didn't linger to the point that I received it. The point is that everyone comes to a moment where you're tired and you're ready to move on. You're ready to take matters into your own hands. You're tired of waiting on the Lord. You're tired of waiting on Him. You're tired of being down on your knees. You're tired of praying. You're tired of waiting on God to answer you. And so what do you do? Take matters into your own hands. And you're going to solve the problem with the things that you can think up between these two ears or the things that you can conjure up between these two hands. The temptation is to look at some other option, some other strategy that does not include God. And Habakkuk says you need to remember what you know about God and then you need to be patient. To stick with God and not miss the answer that comes. Last thing we'll talk about this morning, the reality of joy. If you were to break down uh, Habakkuk in a nutshell, chapter 1 is about the conversation on the presence of evil. Chapter 2, there are five woes that are pronounced. In chapter 3, it, it kind of continues with a negative circumstance, but this time it does it sort of in the form of a psalm. And here are the words at the, the end of the book. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud there, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. You know what Habakkuk is describing there. You know, uh, I tried when I first moved to San Antonio, tried to grow tomatoes in some shallow soil in the, the backyard, and uh, uh, really had a hard time. You know, hot summers and shallow soil, and, you know, I'm not like, you know, Charlie Blank when it comes to growing those tomatoes. And so, you know, I'd grow those tomatoes, and they would get to a certain height, and then they would wilt. And you know what? I did, you know, I didn't fall down on my face crying because those, those plants did not produce tomatoes. You know what I did? Went to the H-E-B. <laughs> they couldn't do that in the time of Habakkuk. When he says that there are no grape clusters on those vines, no sheep 
in the pens, no cattle in the stalls, that the fields are producing no food whatsoever, that the olives are not coming in abundance like we want them to come, that the figs are just not there. What he's describing is a national collapse. What he's describing is a society on the brink of, of absolute collapse and disaster. There will be no food when the invader comes. The straits are going to be dire. The circumstances are going to be critical. There is no food. But then verse 18, Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be what, church? Oh, come on, we say better than that. I will be what? Joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. You know, the big question that all of us face when we're honest, and not always are we honest when it comes to this kind of question. But the big question we all face is, how do you determine that God is good? What is it we say God is good all the time? How do you determine that? It's usually when the figs tree bear fruit and the grapes are on the vine, the olives are in abundance, sheep in the pens, cattle in the stalls. In a nutshell, when the times are good and there is peace, then God is good. God is taking care of us. But here's the thing. If you're in Habakkuk's day, inferring God's goodness from good times is dangerous. What about Habakkuk's time? Was God evil because the times were evil? The key is in the preposition. He says, I will be joyful in God my Savior. In God my Savior. I've told you this story about my father a couple of years ago. Uh, maybe a year or so, maybe a year and a half before he died. He uh, was sick all the time and uh, sort of flu-like symptoms, took him to the doctor and, and top of the COPD and, and all, of, all of that stuff, uh, the advanced COPD, they found that he had three robin egg kidney stones in the one kidney he still had left. That the other one had been taken in the cancer. And, you know, everything was backing up, and it was just making him ill all the time. And finally they had to drill a hole in the back, and, and he was evacuating the, the fluid from the kidney from the front and from the back. And this is a guy that, that was at the top of the food chain in the Department of Agriculture in the area of compliance. Nobody higher than him. Working with senators, working with congressmen, working with their lawyers and lobbyists, and so on and so forth in, in D.C. For, for, for decades. And here he is, kind of reduced to this. And he didn't smell great most of the time. Didn't have a whole lot of energy. And there were a series of operations, or they weren't really operations, they were procedures that we were trying to, to, to get him to go through and, and tried to go through where at least you know he would have one of those tubes, the one taking out of his back, and he would be able to live the remainder of his years with just the one, not the two. And so we were kind of hoping that after three attempts, it wasn't going to happen. 
urologist came out and said, you know, we tried and we tried and we tried. We have tried three times. We just don't think that because of the anatomy that we can, you know, snake that, you know, everything around the way that it needs to. And it just, it, he's just going to have to live with it. Well, my mom and I, we're, we're, we're pretty upset for dad. And because it was a procedure, you know, in the middle of the day, he had not eaten since late the night before. So we take him home and uh, mom heads off to Walmart to, to pick up the prescription. I'm there boiling uh, some eggs and making a cup of coffee for my dad since he hasn't eaten. And he j- I, I look over there and he's just looking out the, the French doors out into the mountains in the back there in Fredericksburg. And he says, Mark, I don't know. I just don't know. And, and I stop what I'm doing. I turn to him and I said, you don't know what, Dad? And he goes, I don't know why God has been so good to me. Joy can come in the evil times because God can take you to the heights. When the evil comes into your life, what Habakkuk is telling us is that the evil can bury you under the mountain. Or being in God's presence, remembering what you know and sticking with God even in the worst circumstance that you in your own personal context in life and world can imagine. It can either put you under the mountain or put you on top of it. And that's what Habakkuk is telling us. That the bad times can either push you up the mountain to the heights or put you under the mountain. And the joy that comes to us in the evil times today, well, we sort of have a leg up on Habakkuk. The mountain... That brings us joy. It's a mountain in Jerusalem. A Mount Zion. A Mount Moriah. Where God took the evil upon Himself in order for us to have the joy. The joy of being children. The joy of being sons of the living God. And not just to deal with the evil around us. But to deal with the evil in us. That's why we praise God and that's why we worship and that's why we remember the Lord's Supper. And that's why, quite frankly, we're baptized. Because when when Christ died in our baptism, we are dying and participating in His death. And as He was buried, we are buried in the water. And as He came up to newness of life, having participated in that, we're coming up to newness in life as well. We are participating in His death, burial, and resurrection. And what that means is that You have made Jesus your Lord and you confess that. And you've made a decision in your life that you're going to go in the direction of the Lord. And not just participate in His death, burial, and resurrection, but you're going to participate in every footstep that He takes. That's what it means to be a disciple. And that joy and that peace and that confidence and that strength and that clean conscience and all of the other hundreds of blessings that come your way are the result of what He did. Your joy is the result of what He did. The joy that nobody can ever take away from you. The joy that is inexpressible, according to the words of Peter, is what he did for you. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front, and Ben's going to lead us in a song of praise. We need to praise God, do we not? For the greatness of his joy that comes to us. And if there are ways that our church can minister to you, whatever it might be, these shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Gilbert and Daniel are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them about the ways that we can minister to you as we stand and sing together. 
I cannot today what tomorrow may bring.